Well, tonight we have the glorious privilege of starting a new book. We're going to be introducing you to the great prophet Nehemiah. Probably of all those servants who were in the Old Testament, perhaps the greatest in, in pulling together the spiritual and the practical. And I think that's the problem that we as the body of Christ often have. You know, sometimes we're good at getting our theology correct, but that theology doesn't go to that place to where it does much in our lives. And there are people who do a lot, but they have bad theology. Nehemiah had them together. He really had a picture of the word and worship and works. And he was able to assemble this incredible team of people that accomplished something that's never been accomplished in human history, that ultimately that would never be repeated in human history, that lets us know that there's something special about someone who has set their hand to the work of the Lord and who's unafraid to give it everything they have. And so tonight we're going to be doing the introduction to the book. We'll look at the first few verses. But it is important as we begin this book for you to realize uh, that this particular guy was not a super saint. He was not a Bible college grad. Uh, He had no degrees of any kind except a degree in life. Uh, He wasn't extremely famous until this picture comes into view. He didn't come from a long line of prophets. We have no family history that says that his grandfather's mother's uncle's friend's cousin, uh, down to the sixth generation, was involved in ministry. This is a guy who simply saw a need and prayed, God, is this my call? And when he heard it, he answered the call of the Lord with everything he had. And so I pray that as we embark on this journey, this is one of my favorite uh, Old Testament books, that it's non-prophetic. It is just a story of a man who loves the Lord with all of his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength, uh, every hair on his head and every one of his fingernails uh, was put to the task that God had called him to. And we desperately need Nehemiahs in our world today. Uh, We have some Marys. We have some Marthas. We even have a Daniel or two occasionally. But Nehemiahs are hard to come by. And that's not a gender issue. There's, There's some lady Nehemiahs out there. Before we dig into the Word tonight, let's ask the Lord to speak to us through His Word. Let's take it to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You. Lord, for this incredible saint, a man whom, as we look at his life, will be amazed to see what you can accomplish when you call someone they respond to that call with all that they have. God, may we be open to that. Would we have that place of understanding that you use the simplest among us? God, you're not looking for those that are already Uh, equipped, you will equip us. You're looking for those who will simply do what you ask and do it with a whole heart. And so, God, we offer you our hearts tonight. We pray that you would bless us. And, Lord, as there are some among us who are sick, we pray that you'd heal those who are sick. We want to lift up uh, Connie to you, uh, Kendall's sister. We pray that, God, you would just heal her body and touch her. Lord, we pray that you would work amongst your people, Lord, to accomplish your will and pleasure. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see a bunch of things in this first chapter, and I want to begin kind of by giving you a little picture of this man. And as I said, Nehemiah, he basically is a cupbearer. And a lot of people, when they hear that, they kind of think of a modern butler. That's not a good analogy. That's not a good way to see Nehemiah. Nehemiah was much more than a butler. And in fact, you have another case of that in Genesis chapter 40, and Joseph is actually introduced to who was Pharaoh's cupbearer, and we see that there were a lot of qualifications for a cupbearer. There was somebody who was definitely intelligent, uh, even down to somebody that was good-looking. You know, the king didn't want somebody coming into his presence that, you know, made him look bad. So 
there, there was even some physical characteristics that are mentioned there in Genesis 40. But the key thing to remember about this particular man is that he was in a position of power. And he's going to go from a position of power to take on perhaps the greatest construction project that the world has ever seen in a very scant period of time. And he's going to step out in faith, and he's not going to get paid for it. He wasn't offered a position at, you know, Bechtel Corporation. Boeing didn't call him up on the phone and go, hey, we've got this six-figure position for you. We want you to show up. And, you know, we, we see, you know, exactly how you've handled yourself in Persia. He is going to go from the top literally to the bottom as far as the world's concerned. He's going to tackle a project where the people have been there for nearly a 100 years, and they've ignored it. He's going to tackle a project that should have been done a long time ago, but because of apathy, the people sat there in the midst of the squalor and the ruin and said, we don't really care. He's going to go back to a city uh, that began its demise, if you will, under the Assyrian onslaught that's recorded for you in the book of Isaiah that would be ultimately finished off and actually sacked and burned by the Babylonians when Daniel, whom we just left, was taken into captivity. You're going to see a man who really has no practical reason to do what he's going to do. And it is so important that you grab this message now. Because a lot of what God calls us to do, and I want to be careful how I say this, doesn't necessarily make sense humanly. God may well ask you to take a step of faith and to leap into some great beyond that doesn't make a lot of practical sense. You have to be open if you want to be used. And if you're simply going to put the ducks in a row and you're going to do what seems to be practically correct and right and beneficial for you, you may miss some of the greatest things that God calls you to do. Nehemiah was willing to, to set that aside. His position that he had was great responsibility and privilege. Uh, at each meal, he had the, the horrible task, if you will, of tasting the king's food. And, and for us, you know, some of us saying, sign me up. You know, I like to be a food taster, a wine slurper, you know, those types of jobs. It's like I could be one of those. Not a whole lot of qualification sounds pretty nice. You know, I think King eats pretty well, has some nice delicacies. So where do I sign up? But what you have to understand is the purpose behind that was to protect the king from being poisoned or killed. And so it wasn't exactly a job that anyone signed up for. You know, oh, hey, I'd like to maybe die today, so I'll take this job as the cupbearer. And so it was a very, very tenuous job. It was the type of job that he went in every day, not knowing whether that day would be his last. But it was a position that came with, with great authority and responsibility. He was close to the king. Uh, he had access to the king pretty much 24-7. And so the king very often turned to his cupbearer because nobody that you could trust any more than the one that you trust with your life. Amen? So if the king wakes up in the morning and he can trust Nehemiah to taste his food so he doesn't die, you can be pretty sure that he's a good guy to talk to in a pinch. And so very often the cupbearer would become the king's confidant. And very often, nearly the second in charge in that particular land would be a very, very, very high position. And so here we find Nehemiah, a Jew, uh, in this incredible, important position uh, in this Persian palace. Now, to set the stage for you, Susa, or Sushan, is the, is the Hebrew rendering of that word, Susa uh, being the, the Persian name. Uh, it is a city that still exists today in modern-day Iran. Uh, it's in the south. Uh, western portion of Iran, not very far from the Iraq border. Uh, it is one of the world's oldest inhabited cities. Uh, it, like Damascus, uh, Tyre, Sidon, some of those locations in Lebanon, have uh, been occupied for more than 4,000 years. And so this was the palace city of the Persian Empire. And if you go there today, some interesting things that you'll find. Uh, among them, oddly, strangely enough, is the tomb of the prophet whom we just left, Daniel. 
And so it's widely believed that that's the, that is the last resting place of Daniel the prophet. They're uh, in Iran today, and it's actually a pretty large tourist destination as well for those who uh, visit Iran. And so that ancient city uh, still is habited to this day. And so God puts Nehemiah, a, a Jew, in the middle of a Persian king's uh, sphere of authority, if you will, in a place that he doesn't want to be, almost a thousand miles from his home. Think about it. So when we think about Iran and, and Jerusalem today, that is a long ways. Daniel's sitting there looking at this this whole scene, and, and he realizes, uh, as we just left the book of Daniel, that, that the captivity is about over. But what are you going to do when the captivity is over? What are you going to do about what the captivity did? What are you going to what are you going to do? What are we going to do when we see the walls are broken down? What are we going to do when we see the the gates of our temple, our lives, our ministry, our church, our country, our world? What are we going to do when we see that there's destruction and ungodliness has ruled and reigned? By the time this happened, The first group of Jewish captives that went back have been there for almost a 100 years. So this is a long time after Daniel. And they've done nothing. They didn't care. Apathy had set in. And I would say to you that's a huge parallel with our world today and with our country today. We've had hundreds of years of, in essence, being a Christian nation. We now stand on the verge of watching the walls of our city torn down, the walls of our city burned, the gates of our city burned, the worship of God being something that's, that's scoffed at, laughed at. It, it's an anathema to the average person. And so there are many parallels that we can learn here. And so for nearly a century, the Jewish remnant had been back in their own land And I want you to notice this. Nehemiah could have joined them, but he chose to stay where God had placed him. And it's so important for us to learn that lesson of contentment early in our walks with the Lord. Some people get really stirred up for the next big thing. And in in going after the next big thing, they miss the simple thing that God wants to do first. And it always ends up in this circuitous route that comes back to where they were before they can go where they wanted to be. And so I want to encourage you uh, to look at Nehemiah's contentment to be even the king's cupbearer, if that meant being in the center of God's will, to being in the middle of God's will as the best thing that any of us can do, as opposed to necessarily maybe uh, back in your own hometown. Moving to that place that you think, circumstantially will be something that's better for you. And so it's interesting also, I I would suggest to you that I think that Satan thought that he had won in Nehemiah's life. I think from Satan's perspective, he's saying, look, I've got this guy, sees some potential in him, he says, I'll just keep him here. But little did he know that Nehemiah was a man of prayer, and that's the very first thing that we're going to see as we embark on the journey next week. You see, a praying person can be anywhere and be powerful. You can be in prison and and be powerful in prayer. You can be completely out of your comfort zone and be powerful in prayer. You can accomplish much for the kingdom, and there's not a thing Satan can do about it when you're knocking on the doors of heaven. And there's nothing that person who may hate, maybe they hate your guts. They can't stand the dirt that you stand on. But there is nothing they can do about your prayer life. They can take your eyesight. They can take your tongue. They can take your ability to move. And you can still be an effective prayer warrior. And not only are we going to see this next week here in Nehemiah, but it's the next thing coming in Ephesians. So I believe the Lord has a word for us on our prayer life here in this church. And I think a lot of times we lack power because we don't ask. That's what James said, by the way. He says, you have not because you ask not, or you ask wrongly, incorrectly, you ask amiss. 
Nehemiah wasn't afraid to pray and lay it all out before the Lord. And in doing so, God put Nehemiah in Susa. He had put Esther in the same place a generation before, by the way. It was God who put Joseph in Egypt, and it was God who put Daniel in Babylon. Amen? All of those places were not good places. Amen? That verse we all love to quote. That which the enemy meant for evil, God intended and used for good. There in Genesis chapter 50 in the life of Joseph. That's the truth for anyone who's really serving the Lord. Maybe it's the enemy that got you there. Maybe it's that situation in life. Uh, that you didn't intend the end result, that you find yourself now in a place where God has placed you there and God wants to work in your life. Don't miss that God wants to work in your life. God wants to accomplish his work, and in doing so, he always prepares his workers and he always puts them in the place that he wants them at just the right time. Like Daniel, Nehemiah's time was now. Sometimes that's the thing we're really waiting for. So I've shared with you before, one of the great hindrances to understanding, knowing, and accomplishing God's will is failing to yield your time to God. Because in not yielding our time, we basically say, well, God, if you do it now, I'm okay with it. If you do it later, I'm not okay with it. Uh, If you don't do it in my time, I don't think you're going to do it at all. Every day that you have, is one of God's days. Nehemiah understood that. Daniel understood that. Esther understood that. Joseph understood that. Isaiah understood that. Jeremiah understood that. My days are fashioned, David said, by the Lord, and they are numbered by him. That he knew them before there were any. And so when you're in that situation in life where you don't quite get why God's got you there, don't surrender the time. Make sure that you give God the time. Let him work those details out. Be patient. Be long-suffering. Suffer long and be kind is what your Bible says while you're doing it. Go with it. Let God work. God hasn't told you to move then stay put until he tells you to move. Here in this story, it's going to be a very fast-paced one initially. It's going to move from Susa back to Jerusalem. And it's going to involve a very amazing feat that we've already looked at in Daniel and involved Daniel's 70 weeks. If you remember that decree that went out that Daniel mentioned is the decree that will now be brought up here in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 2, the decree of Artaxerxes, Longimanus. This is a well, again, well-documented historical figure. And so as we look at this, we're, we're going to think of the, this whole series this way. This is a routine day. This is just a normal day in the life of Nehemiah. There's absolutely nothing special about the day that begins this story. You need to remember that because God uses the routine. God uses the ordinary. God uses the plain. Can I say to you that God even uses the boring? The things that you're like, I'm just going to go to work again. Just going to, I'm going to fold another load of socks. God can use you in the midst of folding socks, guys. Fold your own socks. Amen, brother. Preach it. You see, and you can liken it because we're going to see here as we as we begin this journey that, that Daniel sees that the gates are burned and that the the city is open to the attack of the enemy. Very interesting that extremely large gates, extremely large doors swing on very small hinges. Amen? And that's the picture here. You know, very minor things in life sometimes can be the thing that everything else hangs on. 
seemingly invisible things. When you look at a door, most people don't even know that there's hinges on them. You know, if you're not familiar with how a door works, when you look at the doors, you don't see the hinges, you just see the door. And yet, the only reason that door moves, it has the capacity to do what it does, is because of something small. Don't miss the small things in your life. God works in the small things. The insignificant things. It was just an ordinary day when Moses went out to care for his sheep. But it was on that day that he heard the voice of the Lord. Amen? Pretty ordinary thing, caring for sheep if you're a shepherd. Amen? But he actually heard the voice of the Lord. It was a very ordinary day when David was called out of the field from shepherding. But on that day he was anointed as king of Israel. Amen? Very ordinary day. He didn't have a clue that was what was... He didn't wake up and there he goes to his day timer if you still use one or you're... You know, you pull out your iPad and you look at your calendar for you get your iPhone out. And you're like, oh, today is Wednesday and oh, I'm going to be anointed king. It wasn't on his calendar, amen? Same thing with Nehemiah. You don't know what God's going to do. That's why we cherish every day. We look at each day as a divine opportunity for the Lord to do something amazing. Some small thing upon which some big thing may swing may come to you simply because you're alive on planet Earth and where God wants you to be. Don't miss that. It was an ordinary day when Peter and Andrew and James and John were mending their nets. Amen? That was after a night of failure, I might add. You remember the story? They came back. They are bummed out of their gourds. They got no fish. (laughs) Oh, man, this is just horrible. We are lousy fishermen. The enemy had crept in and convinced them that they were worthless. The enemy is going to do the same thing to you. Going to come in and say, you don't have any value to God. Why do you even try? And yet it was on that day that Jesus called him and said, today I want you to become fishers of men. Not just fishermen, fishers of men. Pretty humongous calling from a very ordinary place. Amen? That's Nehemiah. He's the king's cupbearer. He's a thousand miles from Jerusalem. He's probably heard that things aren't good. But he's just patiently waiting on the Lord for God to move. Sometimes it's those simple things. Maybe it's going to be a conversation with somebody at work, maybe a friend, a relative, someone passing by in the store. It it could happen here in the lobby of the church. Maybe it's a camp. Maybe you go someplace. For me, I was a 15-year-old at a a camp with a very young youth pastor named Bob Boy. He says, you know, I believe someday God's going to use you in ministry. I didn't have any idea what he was going to do. And I sure didn't know how he was going to do it. But here I am. That's how God works. He works in simple things. He works in ordinary things. You don't always get a big, you know, you don't have, you know, the blimp go by with your name on the side of it. You don't have skywriting. There's no laser show that's on MSNBC, you know. The Jeff Show. Just simple things. Notice how this begins. Nehemiah just asks some simple questions, and he wants to hear the answer. Can, can I set the stage for you? Do you want to hear what God has to say? Because you've got to talk to him if you want to hear what God has to say. God isn't just going to hunt you down and go, hey, i got something to tell you. Now, you may get it, what we call an epiphany, but most of the time it's through conversation and knowing your king, spending time with him. We're going to cover this on Sunday. We're supposed to know him. Nehemiah knew his God. He trusted his God. He understood who his God was. He knew the promises God had made. And he was brave enough to hold God to those promises. Are you brave enough to hold God to his promises?
Because you got to be. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's what your Bible says. That, that element of faith is the secret ingredient in virtually every equation that God throws at us. Uh, we may have the practical skills, but do we have the faith to believe that God's going to do what he said he would do? Nehemiah was a man who, who was fit for the time. Almost a century and a half before the prophet Jeremiah, which is recorded in Jeremiah 15.5, and it says there, For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? It's a question from the great prophet Jeremiah, contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. Or who will bemoan you? You see, there's two opportunities. Who's going to have pity? Who's going to show sympathy and empathy and actually care? Or who's just going to simply go, ugh, Jerusalem? Who cares? It had its heyday. You see, if I remember in my heart what God's promise was to the nation Israel, as he would go on and later write through the prophet Joel, this is my land, I'm giving it to you. This is the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you are to go and inhabit it. You see, from God's perspective, he had made promises, and they were contingent upon the Jewish people being in that land. So Nehemiah looks at it from the second half of this verse, or who will turn aside and ask, how are you doing? Nehemiah answers that call 150 years later. How, how's God's city? How's the city of peace? Jerusalem. The city of peace. How is it? It's a mess. It's a wreck. And so some people don't want to hear what's going on. And let me tell you why. Because they think ignorance is bliss. They don't want to know what's going on in the world. They don't want to know what's going on in the church. They don't want to know what's going on in the mission field. They don't even want to know what's going on with their own kids in their own home. Because if they know, then they're going to be stuck having to do something with that information. And so the Jewish people, much like a lot of Christians in churches today, didn't really want to know. Hey, we're a thousand miles away. I, you know, it's not a Sarah Palin thing. I can see Jerusalem from here. <laughs> Just want to give equal opportunity here. I don't want anybody to think. Yeah. Couldn't see Jerusalem from there. Didn't affect him on a daily basis. But he was so in tune with the Lord that the very word of his beloved city that he had likely never seen. Never. He simply trusted God. He himself is a relatively young man. You, you see, he was willing to believe God. In God's economy, it is in fact what you don't know that can hurt you. You can miss God's calling. And so this is a story of a man wanting to know what God wanted him to do. Verse 1 here in Nehemiah chapter 1. And these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Shizlev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Sushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, one of my brothers, came with men of Judah. And I want you to underline Judah, because it's really important. Judah is all that's left of the 12 tribes. There were originally 12. When the Assyrians came, they wiped out the entire northern kingdom, which would have been everybody but Judah. So all that's left of the Jewish people, ostensibly, is the tribe of Judah. That's the land of Judea. It's the part that contains Jerusalem. It's simply the southern kingdom. And so what you really have now is they've been reduced to this remnant population, this tiny sliver of what once was a much greater nation. And so here, uh, these men of Judah, the survivors, if you will, 
the ones that had gone back previously, probably from the captivity of Daniel, could have been there for as long as a hundred years. So you have 70 years of captivity with Daniel, right? We looked at that. We have a hundred years from the time that the first captives went back and Ezra and all of the things that were accomplished. And we're going to look at parts of that as we study this book. And so for a hundred and sixty years, the remnant, Judah, the bearers of God's covenants to the Jewish people, think of it that way. Those who are the remnant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom the Lord says, I will bless those who bless me. I will pour out upon you and make you a great nation. They were content with not being a great nation. They were content with a burned out city, a ruined city. They were content with hanging around in the slums. They weren't concerned with the things of God. In essence, they had taken the view that if we went into captivity and we came back here, we don't even care. What are you going to do? When God allows something in your life that you don't like and you don't want, are you then going to settle for the destruction? Or are you going to say, let's arise and build? Because that's your choice. You see, sometimes marriage is a great example of this. Things happen. Gets out of control. Gets out of whack. Say things we don't mean. Mean things we don't say. Gets haywire. The enemy comes in. The destruction happens. Are you willing to sit in the destruction of your marriage? Are you going to say, let's arise and build? Because it's a spiritual thing. The same thing is true with our nation. How did we get here? How is it that we can have these tragedies that seem to come one right after another because our, our... Moral fabric is destroyed. Is the church going to say, let us arise and build? Or is the church going to be perfectly content to sit in the squalor and watch those things which God has done be squandered? Because we can do that. We can make that choice. We can look at our world and go, oh, there's no sense in fighting against these things. I mean, gay marriage is just a foregone conclusion. Let's just give up. Pornography is just so pervasive, let's just, let's just not even say anything about it. You know, after all, what is 1.5 million babies a year? I mean, given all the children that we have in the world, I mean, is it really that bad? After all, it's a woman's body and her right to choose. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're faced with the same dilemma. Different circumstances, but the same dilemma. When we see the brokenness, when we see the things of God trampled on, when the temple is torn down, when the word is no longer preached, are we going to say, oh well, it's pretty nice over here in this pile next to the old wall? Or are we going to say, as Nehemiah will say, let's arise and build? Because God is asking, I believe, if we're going to arise and build. I believe there's still time. But if the church won't awaken to that reality, I guarantee you the world is not going to. If we who are children of God by grace will not arise to the task, I guarantee you people that care nothing for the things of God are perfectly content to watch it slip into the proverbial sewer. They're fine with it. They don't care. You see, some people don't want to know. And notice how it now begins to play out. Hanani, one of his brothers, comes with the men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, concerning one thing and one thing alone. Jerusalem. God's holy city. Specifically, the temple. Specifically, the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And so he asks a very important question. 
how is the spiritual health of the Jewish people? Because without Jerusalem, it's not good. Because God had established with them, the Jewish religion, a temple worship. It revolved around the temple. If there was no temple, there was no worship. Surely there were individual Jews who did the best they could to keep the things of the Lord, but they could not carry out the commands of the Lord because there was no place to do it. They had given up. They said, oh, well, we'll just keep it in our heart. How many people have told you, well, I don't go to church, but I keep it in my heart? I don't really have a relationship with the Lord per se that's external, but I keep it in my heart. I don't actually do anything about my relationship with the Lord, but I believe Him. You see, I think God's raising up some Nehemiahs. Some people who look at that destruction and say, not on my watch. Not on my watch. I'd rather die trying than not try. And I think God's watching and He's waiting. And I think he has with every generation. He said, concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, notice in verse 3, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are in great distress. And notice the word reproach. They're despicable. They're pathetic. They're an anathema to God. They don't even remotely resemble the chosen people of the Lord. They have sat in the destruction and the filth and been okay with it for so long, they don't even look like God's people anymore. That's what he's saying. They've gotten so comfortable in the world and doing things the world's way that you can't distinguish between them and the world. And in fact, we're going to find from the book of Ezra and from the book of Chronicles that in fact they had actually taken up the worship of the Canaanite gods in the land that they were inhabiting. And they began to worship Ashtaroth. Aristarch, Molech, Baal. And in fact, there was more garbage than there was good. And I say to you, sounds a whole lot like a country that I know. Country that's been blessed. Country that's been absolutely showered with blessing over hundreds of years. That is forsaken that and said, no, we're perfectly okay with the gods of the Canaanites. Now we worship Molech. You know, let's take our babies and fry them on the altar. That's what they did if you worship Molech. They took your children and they heated the bronze statue of Molech to white hot and then they would take their live children and put them on the arms of Molech and burn them to death. I wonder how God views our world at times and the blessings that we have. And they said to me, the survivors who were left from the captivity in the province, they're in great distress. In other words, they don't have what they need. They're hungry and they're a reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates burned with fire. You see, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were the protection for the inhabitants of Jerusalem who were the chosen of God. So this is very much a picture of the church in our day and time. When the walls of the church, the word of God, are broken down and the gates, prayer ceases, the city's in ruin. When God is no longer worshipped, when he's no longer adored, when his word is not first and when his people don't pray, the city is vulnerable to attack. 
And we're going to see as we embark on this journey that it wouldn't have taken much to attack the city. And that's the picture that Nehemiah hears. He he says, the walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. In other words, anyone who wants to can just come in and do whatever they want to do. You see, because at the time, the worshipers of Yahweh, Lord of hosts, were the Jews. The one true and the living God who made a covenant with one sole people, who spoke a single language, who were to be God's representatives on earth, and who were given a picture of grace in the Old Testament Mosaic law and all of the temple ceremonies and sacrifices. They were given a picture, and they didn't care. It's like, what are we going to do? Task is too big. We're just going to sit here and bemoan, as Jeremiah said. And so it was, notice verse 4, that when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept. What happens to you when you hear about the decline of the church? About the decline of marriage? About the decline of people's personal walks with the Lord? About the turn of our nation away from the things of God and towards the things of the world? What happens to you? Does it bother you? Do you care? Does it make you cry? What happened with Nehemiah? Nehemiah's heart was pierced. He says, no. The last vestige of the worship of the holy God who made a covenant with my forefathers is almost gone. It can't be. And I want you to notice something. Without weeping and without warfare, there is no winning. Because if you don't care enough to see it for what it is, and if it doesn't bother you at a deep enough place, that it produces an emotional response. And if you're not willing to wage war, then you cannot win. Because the enemy isn't going to lie down. The enemy's got him on the ropes. Amen? Jerusalem's gone for all intents and purposes. Can I remind you of something very important? What nationality is your king? He is a Jew. He will come from the tribe of Judah. If Jerusalem doesn't get rebuilt, what do you think happens to the possible lineage of the Messiah himself? It will vanish from the face of the earth. This was a spiritual battle for the very plans of God. If there is no Judea, if there is no Jerusalem, if there are no Jews, if they are extinguished, and it would only take about another 400 years to do it, they could be gone in about two generations, and there would be no more Jews at all. They would have intermarried with the Amorites. They would have intermarried with the, with the Edomites. They would have intermarried with the Phoenicians. They would have intermarried with the Canaanites and the Egyptians and Everything God says grinds to a halt. There will be no more promise. And Satan wins. So in essence, one man seeing the condition of the kingdom of God at that time, because that's what it represented, all that's left, the city of Jerusalem, says, not on my watch. I'm not going to let it happen. I'll take on the most monstrous task that's ever been undertaken, but I'm going to die trying. And so he sat down and wept and mourned for many days. It's interesting how that weeping led to mourning. The weeping led to mourning. In other words, 
he sat down and agonized over it. It wasn't just tears of recognition. It was tears for authorization. God, what do you want me to do? What can I do? How should I hear these things? What should I do with them, he says. It hurts in a place I've never hurt before. And I was fasting. He said, I'll do without. I just want to hear your voice, Lord. I'll die to myself, but I want to hear your voice, Lord. I don't care what's going on in the world. I want to hear your voice, Lord. Because that's what real fasting is. Fasting is not just missing a meal. Fasting is is dying to oneself so that you can hear clearly the voice of the Lord. And if you're unwilling to weep and you're unwilling to mourn, then fasting really isn't going to do a whole lot of good. Because real fasting comes on the heels of weeping and mourning. It's like, God, this is just hurting me someplace that I've never experienced before. And I want to know what you have to say about it. And that's the reason it says, and praying before the God of heaven. You see, this is a man who saw what had happened, understood what was coming, and realized that no one cared. And if everybody took that position, that the results were catastrophic to all of mankind. He knew the promises of God. He said, I can't let this happen. You know, sometimes when I look at churches, and and I'm not talking about this one, but I'm talking about churches in general, I wonder how deep they actually go at times. And I'm not specifically trying to call anyone out, but I wonder how important it is that we have a Starbucks in the lobby. That's real important. But we can't weep and mourn. That it doesn't bother us that our world's falling apart. We get a new facility and we have wonderful things. and Yeah, we've got some brand spanking new buses with our names on the side of them. And again, I'm not against any of these things. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I'm saying when those things take importance over mourning the spiritual condition of the nation, weeping over broken marriages, caring about lost children and people who don't have a place to lay their head, when we miss the hungry, when the thirsty go without drink, we need to rethink our priorities. Nehemiah rethought his priorities. He could have stayed as the king's cupbearer. He was set. Dangerous job, yeah, but it came with some perks. This is a story of a man who responded to the need and asked God if he was being called. Brings to close the Old Testament history. As we look at the book of Ezra, book of Esther, it really brings to the end, if you will, the history of the Jewish people. And praise God, it ends where it ends. Because it ends with worship restored, with the Word of God being taught, with prayer, with praise. That's where this story will actually end. You see, the word and worship and works always have gone together, and they need to still go together. Now, we've got, if we just come here and we worship the Lord, and we study his word, and then we do nothing with it, shame on us. Shame on us. If we just come and get spiritually fat and happy, shame on us. And I say this to no one here to put you under condemnation, but to simply draw attention to the fact that true worship and true study of God's word will lead to works that are righteous. Things that matter, things that count. 
And so Nehemiah is going to provide the information that we will understand that as the walls are rebuilt, the worship returns and the word returns. You see, those walls represent what you and I would call sanctification. They represent what you and I would call separation, being a saint and being more saintly. You see, those walls provided a place in a hostile environment that the Jewish people could go and worship the true and the living God. And for us in this New Testament day and time in the age of grace, that can be your own privacy of your own heart. But what it really is a picture of is something a little bigger than that. And I ask you, what's the condition of the walls? How do they really look? And do we really want to know? Do we care? You see, because when we lose our capacity to worship, when we lose our capacity to study the word, we will then lose our capacity to do work for the Lord. And ultimately, we will have no impact. And we will fade from existence. It's always been this way. And so those walls weren't just walls of physical protection. They were the walls of the worship of the Lord. They represented the spiritual place that the children of Israel needed to go. To be built up. To be prepared. To be sent out. To be ready to go and do what God had called them to do. And if you leave your walls destroyed and broken down you will be just as unfit for service as they were. If you cave in to the enemy's threats, you will be just as beat down as they were. You see, Nehemiah's name actually means the comforted of Yahweh. He actually was to be that one that God would just speak so much truth into that no matter what the task, he would be ready to go try it. I know how we need that type of view of our world today. It looks grim. I don't know about any of you, but I watched a little, as much as I could stand, of the State of the Union address, which is about five minutes. It's just like I've heard this bloviating before, you know. I found it very interesting that today Anton Scalia, one of our Supreme Court justices, very conservative guy, said that he doesn't go to the State of the Union address because they're childish. Yeah, we're talking about all these things that don't matter while indebting generation after generation after generation of, of Americans should we survive. That's kind of the way some of the church acts today. Well, we'll just keep borrowing from our future. After all, I mean, we've been here for X number of years. We've been on this street corner for a hundred years. At one point in time, we had this many people. And just like the Jews of old, they were relying on yesterday's manna. Now we'll just collect enough for tomorrow, too only to find out that they couldn't, and it rotted. And so Nehemiah, here in about 445 B.C., uh, very contemporary, writing at exactly the same time as Ezra, and we'll get into a little bit of that next week, begins to hear the call of the Lord. And he will provide the background to the final book of the Old Testament, Malachi. He will bring us up to that period of time in history. Uh, He's going to see the affliction of God's people, of his city. He's going to look at the temple in its ruins and think about what he's seeing. This is Solomon's temple. This most magnificent edifice in the ancient world. In ruins. So much so that as we studied in Daniel... That some years later, Antiochus Epiphanes would come and he would actually allow farm animals in the temple itself. 
That's how broken down they were. Ezra and Nehemiah will work together as priest and governor. And it's an interesting parallel because if you know anything about your Messiah, the Jews' Messiah, that one day the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. He's going to be both priest and governor. And so Ezra and Nehemiah represent the bookends of those two offices that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords holds. The worship of the Lord, the sanctity of the Lord, the holiness of the Lord, the government shall be upon his shoulders, did not Isaiah say? It's a picture of the fullness of who God is as these two men get together at this time. The significance of this is this provides us with the only consecutive account of the history of the Jewish people after the Babylonian exile. So this is it. This is the end of the history of the Jewish people, if you will, uh, until the few things that we learn from the New Testament. And so is it right for us to put this much weight in this book? Absolutely. Matter of fact, this book is one of the few books that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were unearthed and finally uh, taken apart and and examined, uh, the book of Nehemiah among them, the book of Ezra among them, and then all of that history also backed up with another set of very interesting documents that were found on a little tiny island that's in the middle of the Nile River down near the Aswan Dam uh, called Elephantine Island. And on that island was a exact replica of the Temple of Solomon. Built by the Jewish exiles from this time in Egypt. Uh, it's believed, and, and as the papyri from there were uh, discovered and then finally uh, actually gone through, and it wasn't really until the 1890s uh, that they were completely translated. But it appears that Uh, This group of people that were alive during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah were responsible for the construction of that temple because they didn't get the picture of what Nehemiah and Ezra would do, and they left believing that the city would never recover. And so they went to Egypt, and it's there on that island. It's believed to be one of the places that may well have been for a time the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant and from there possibly taken into Ethiopia. Again, those things are speculatory, but there is some truth to the fact uh, that there there are a number of letters there. One of them, a letter to Jonathan, who was the high priest in Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah, was found on that island, uh, dated to roughly the time period uh, around 300 B.C. And so it appears that at least from the standpoint of the writings that we do have, that Nehemiah was a real person. Uh, Nehemiah was mentioned in that letter as the rebuilder of Jerusalem. And so very, very, very likely that as we look at these words, this is the first-hand account of the one and only Nehemiah. And they're words of truth. It's interesting, Mark Twain, whom I love some of his one-liners, In his letter to Mrs. Foote, said this. He said, all you need in life is ignorance and confidence, and then success is sure. I would say that's our congressional motto right now. (laughs) There are a lot of people who are very confident in extremely ignorant things. They can see the truth and do nothing with it. Nehemiah saw the truth and said, As bad as it looks, I still want to be used to do something about it. Nehemiah asked about Jerusalem. He asked about the Jews living there because he wanted to know. Don't be afraid to ask God the hard questions. Closing our eyes and pretending it doesn't exist never solves anything. And Nehemiah knew that. Amen? He wanted to get that news. And even though that news wasn't good, He said, I'd rather have bad news and know how to respond to accomplish the will of God than to have 
good news that isn't true and thereby not know how to pray, not be brokenhearted. Great book in store for us as we journey through the book of Nehemiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time together, and we pray, uh, Lord, make us like Nehemiah. Lord, help us to inquire of what state the walls of your kingdom are in our world. Lord, help us to know the truth and know how to pray. God, we thank you that you've appointed us for such a time as this. And Lord, help us to not miss the ordinary. Help us to allow you to control every moment of every day of our lives. Help us to be people of prayer, God. Help us to have that balance of seeing the need and weeping and mourning and fasting and praying. God, we know that that you have a plan and we know that you love the lost. God, you love us, that your desires that all men be saved come to the knowledge of repentance. And so, Lord, as we sit here tonight comfortable and blessed, help us to be stirred to action. Lord, help us to heed the call that you might put upon our lives. Lord, to tackle the big things if necessary. If you call us, help us to be bold enough to go. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.